This podcast is proudly produced and presented by the Zoomer Podcast Network, home of great podcasts like Marilyn Lightstone Reads, Idea City on the Air, and The Garden Show. You're listening to an exclusive podcast of Fight Back on Zoomer Radio. Heard weekdays from noon to one. Now, Fight Back with Libby Snymer on Zoomer Radio. Good afternoon and welcome. It's Tuesday, time for our crack strategy panel. And first off, I want to talk about that cross-country truckers protest. It has been organized by a former official of the right-wing Wexit group, and that is uh, Western Brexit, Western Exit, whatever you want to call it. And it has apparently raised now up to $4.2 million in a GoFundMe campaign. Now, the convoy has started on its way to Ottawa, picking up supporters, mostly for short periods along the way. And as you heard in Bob's news, GoFundMe has frozen the cash, waiting for documentation about uh, where and how it is going to be distributed. Well, there was a shortage, a shortage of truckers before COVID, and now we are hearing dire warnings about shortages because of the new vaccine mandates on both sides of the border. You know, I, I, I have a hard time wrapping my head around this. I have a hard time believing that really tens of thousands of truckers are so anti-vax that they'll give up their livelihoods. Uh, and the Canadian Trucking Alliance has condemned this protest. They say, you want to protest? Go to Parliament Hill. Don't block the highways. I think that is pretty good advice. Uh, we have uh, four high-profile conservative MPs who are rah-rah behind these people. And the leader, Evan O'Toole, seems to be waffling, as usual. So what do you think? 416-360-0740, toll-free, 1-866-744-740. And now I'd like to welcome Karen Stintz, CEO of Variety Village, John Capobianco, Senior Vice President, Senior Partner, Fleischman Hillard High Road, and Charles Sousa, the former Minister of Finance for Ontario and MPP for Mississauga South. Hello, everyone. Hi, Libby. Hi, Libby. Hi everybody. Uh, let me start with... Karen, I don't know, the, this whole story about the truckers' protests, the, the huge amounts of money, I don't know, it just doesn't add up for me. What, what do you think? Well, I, I kind of have a different view on it. And that, um, I mean, I don't know where the money's coming from. That'll be certainly a curiosity. But, but the challenge now being faced with vaccine mandates is that um, they don't spread stop COVID because vaccinated people can spread COVID, especially the Omicron. So... And we've seen in, in various healthcare sectors, actually, the, the governments have had to pull back on mandated vaccines because of having to lose staff. And 15% is what they're saying, 10 to 15% is what they're seeing in the general population in certain industries. And, you know, here at the truckers, they have been not vaccinated for two years, um, going about their business because they've been deemed to be essential. And now when we have a variant, it doesn't actually... Um, that vaccines don't really work against in terms of spread, it becomes a much harder sell to say to this cohort, you need to be vaccinated in order to cross the border. And so, you know, and then with that, there's the public's frustration around, you know, here we are two years in and, um, you know, things are just getting harder. If you get vaccinated, you still can't go to the, you can't go to the restaurant. You can't get food in the grocery store. You can't go to the gym. Kids aren't like well, they're back at school now, but, you know, I think there's a, a frustration that's percolating. And that I, I think that irrespective of how the truckers are dealt with, the government needs to pay attention to. Charles, what's your view? Well, Karen makes a point that just because you're inoculated doesn't mean you're not contagious. And I guess that's the argument being made. But this freedom rally is really a rally cry for those on the fringes and those that, have, frankly, oppose any government intervention, except when they get sick. And then, of course, they appreciate the fact that the government's there to support them when they most need it. And that's the point here. Getting inoculated, and thankfully the Truckers uh, Alliance has acknowledged that it's inappropriate for them to, to do this, that we should take those appropriate steps, because, you know, COVID is still spreading. We're still fighting this battle. And the truckers, they don't, you don't get vaccinated, fine, you quarantine after you're done your, your trip. And they, they have choices. But this is about 
trying to stop the spread, and I'm infuriated by the fact that these guys are doing it. And I think it's a, it's a select few, even though they've raised a lot of money. This is bigger than the truckers. This is not just the truckers. So uh, where is all this money? It's a lot of money, and I'm sure people who raise money for political mm-hmm. parties are, are watching with interest. I don't think it's all come from Canada. I mean, John, they've raised a lot of money. A lot of money, maybe for sure, and and you know, obviously, as we saw from the from your announcer before the program, that that GoFund, you know, it alarmed them so much that they actually froze the account until they found out, you know, exactly where the money's going to, which is part of the rules with with respect to raising money through GoFundMe. Um, but you know, this is an issue. I think this this is an issue that is that is causing. Um, uh, problems with respect to not only the politicians, but to us in general with respect to this divide between, you know, freedom, as they call it, or, or anti-vaxxers versus vac- those who are vaccinated. Uh, I think truckers have had, um, for the longest time, have been under, undervalued, underestimated, and, and, and the value that they bring to the economy. And I think this pandemic certainly has elevated the, the you know what, how important truckers are and, and to the to the supply chain quite frankly to the economy and and you know we remember early on in the pandemic there were gas stations along the highways that weren't allowing truckers to to use bath the washrooms or, or or to make stops and uh, and it took a number of governments including the Ontario government to say you know that they that they had to allow for truckers to actually use washrooms at these at these truck stops in gas stations because you know without them there was a there was an absolute direct effect to the supply chain. Uh, and and I think we're seeing that now. And, and with protests, though, Libby, you know, sometimes protesters can do themselves harm. Uh, and what we're seeing that, you know, from the Trucker Alliance Association, which is, you know, denouncing this, this saying, you know, there's other ways of being able to protest other than blocking highways, which, of course, does affect Canadians and does put sometimes a bad image to uh, to the protesters and what their message is, is, is going to be. But I think overall this yet, sort of proves the, the divide that we're in and how politicized it's become uh, and and how, you know, Canadians now are, are, are seeing that, you know, they're calling this a freedom rally because they want to be free to, to do what they want to do. But in general, I think governments have made a mistake with respect to messaging on truckers, especially with, you know, on how to deal with cross-border. You know, the federal government had a big mistake with respect to their messaging, whether or not they need to be vaccinated or quarantined. And yeah, that was a mess up, for sure. And uh, they had to correct themselves. First they said no, then they said yes, then they said no, that was a bureaucratic error. Uh, But also the fact is the United States is doing the same thing, and we have certainly no control over them. That's just parody. Uh, Karen, again, uh, I mean, you know, all kinds of other people have to be vaccinated in order to do their jobs. Yeah. But there's also, again, back to even in the healthcare sector, the government's backed away from mandating vaccines. And uh, employers that put in a vaccine mandate, such as myself, I have a vaccine mandate, and I had to let three people go, but I paid them out. I didn't fire them for cause. But now all of those employers who had a vaccine mandate, who fired their employees for cause, are now at a considerable risk because there's it's actually an outstanding legal question. Can you fire someone for cause who doesn't get vaccinated, particularly in light of a variant that doesn't is not immune to vaccine? And so it is not one of those cut and dry issues. And so again, it, as it, like, it seemed to be the right thing to do at the time and arguably still is because it protects people's individual health. But it's also, it's a hard stretch to say that uh, a trucker who's sitting in a cab largely by themselves going back and forth is really contributing to the spread of a variant that is across the globe already. Like it's just a hard sell. Hmm. Uh, John, do you agree? Yeah, I do actually, and, and you know, as I was like, you know, watching this coverage, there was a trucker, uh, a woman who uh, who's been trucking and been, was a trucker for most of her life, basically saying, you know, to, to what Karen was just saying, saying, look, I live in the cabin of my truck. You know, I I, I get up in the morning, I go to I go into the cabin, uh, my truck gets loaded, I'm in the cabin, I drop off the uh, the supplies, I'm in my cabin, I go home, and I see my, my you know my partner, my husband, my wife, whoever, uh, and I go back to work. Like their their exposure quite frankly, to, to other people is probably the most limited than, than most, uh, most workers out there. And, and, and her, her point in the, in the story was, I live in my cabin. I am actually by myself almost 24 hours a day. So the fact that I'm going to be a risk to other people is nonsense. And I think that's what Karen's point is, which is, you know, they are, by virtue of the work that they do, 
um, soulless. They, they work in the trucks alone uh, and have very minimal exposure to, to people. So, you know, but they well, what they unload work. as well. If they, they unload. unload it, other people unload it for them. They actually yeah, they don't unload. Just, yeah, they Sometimes don't, they, they do, to. is my understanding. But no, the point, though, Libby, is that, you know, the, the exposure to other people is quite limited, given the fact that they're an essential, essential service. And more importantly, I think we have to also be alive to the effects that it's having uh, as we're seeing pictures. And I went to a, I went to my local Sobeys the other day. And again, for the first time since the beginning of the pandemic, I saw shelves that were empty. Uh, you know, th- uh, there's a bit of controversy about that. I mean, the people who uh, follow this said, well, there might be some things that you can't get exactly what you want. Uh, I think part of it is also absenteeism. They're stocking the shelves and it depends where you go. I was talking to our Jane Brown this morning and neither of us have seen shortages except for the things that we always see shortages for, like your favorite flavor of favorite coffee. Yeah, well, all I know is that uh, the local Costco, I don't go to Costco, but local Costco in my, in my area, there's a constant lineup every day to get into the, uh, get into the parking lot. So Costco's are doing well. And, and one of the main reasons why these box stores were, remain open is because of the supply chain, because people need to have and buy those bulk purchases at places like Costco where you're allowed to and you can't. Hmm. So where does this go, Charles? Well, uh, let me see if I get this right, though. This is a cross-border requirement to be vaccinated yeah. across the border. So these truckers can truck throughout Canada to their life's content, and that's not an issue. But if the U.S. is going to require you to have a vaccine to cross the border, then you better get vaccinated. Or if you choose not to, then you can't go across. Now, if Canada's taken an extra precaution by insisting upon that for all truckers, including those in the United States, all the better. And you take those precautions. But there's choices. You know, the freedoms that they have are there within their country. But that doesn't mean that we have to allow people into Canada that are not unvac- that are unvaccinated or, and take those, those precautions. I think that's the point being made here. Um, and I, I appreciate that they're alone and they're not exposing others to themselves. And I, I get all that. But there is always some exposure and there is risks to us. Frankly, I'm more upset about... Um, Pearson Airport than I am at a, at a cross border in a car or a truck. You go to you go to Pearson Airport, you get all these people coming off planes, and supposedly everyone's vaccinated, but they're all in queues. They're all neck to neck with one another. They're yep. all exposed for almost an hour, touching each other. It's crazy. Yeah. Um, so it, 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 there's got to be better systems in place. But in this it, one, yeah, get cool. vaccinated, do your job, and of those that are that are rallying around this, as I said, they're not just the truckers. This is a bigger issue than them. Um, but they're free to do whatever they want in Canada. We can't control what other countries are saying to them. And, and Libby, just uh, Charles makes a good point about the airport, and that is an, an issue that has always been a problem, continues to be a problem now that people are still traveling. But, but I, I want to say to Charles's point, though, these truckers have to go to the U.S. to get the supplies mm-hmm. and, and sometimes mm-hmm. have to come back. So that's the issue. It's not so much within the Canadian borders. I think that's least of an issue, but it's when, it's when the truckers have to go to the U.S. to get the various supplies to bring John, back to Canada. Not that's not Canada's about. decision. That's the point. Yeah, I mean, exactly. So what are they complaining about? Canada is not going to influence the U.S. to, to take the mandate off. No, but the, but the Canadian government should be talking with the U.S. government on this on this specific issue and, and sort of being aligned. And I think what we've seen... Well, they are aligned now, aren't they? Well, yeah. yeah. Finally, I think yeah. And when they were essential yeah. services, they were deemed to be throughout these last two years, we took, those, we took a common step. But the fact is, it's continuing to spread. It's not... Yeah. We, we haven't curbed the... I mean, Omicron maybe not, may not be as, can, as bad as COVID-19, but... It is still out there. And the, it, it is still out there, but w- one point, it's not like there is no protection from a vaccine. And yes, you can still spread it if you're vaccinated, but they've found that people who are vaccinated are less contagious than others. Yeah, yeah. for sure. For sure. But it's not, it's not, it's just not the same. It's harder in the workplace to say to somebody, you need to get vaccinated to do your job and to limit the spread of COVID when you, you can't say that with certainty with a vaccine any longer. Yeah. Um, okay, uh, let us move right along uh, here at home in Ontario. Ontario is the only province not to have a daycare deal. Apparently, we're close. Uh, is is there any fallout from that, John? 
Well, yeah, I think, you know, now that we are the standalone province not to have a deal, I think there's obviously pressure. And we're hearing that on, on some of the news stations with, with those not only parents of, of kids, but, but also uh, association leaders. But, you know, look, I think the issue has always been and continues to be the fact that Ontario needs to have a fair share with respect to the amount of money that they get from the feds. And even though the federal government has committed a certain amount of money to, to daycare, uh, across the country, uh, Ontario being the largest province has to have its fair share. And, and I think that's what the negotiations are. I, I, I suspect and we're probably going to hear something within a week uh, on this deal. I know there were in discussions yesterday as well. But, you know, I, I think that we're now going to see it. And once you get the deal, it'll be a deal that will likely be beneficial to Ontarians, which is important. Uh, and that's what the premier has always been trying to fight for. Okay. You know what? Uh, I, 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 uh, forgot to notice some calls uh, back on the trucking issue, so I will take them now. Daryl in Toronto. Hi, Daryl. Hi, everybody. Uh, I just wanted to reiterate and refocus it. It's got nothing to do with with spreading. The idea is it's always been about the healthcare system and not overwhelming it. And I think it's pretty well illustrated that if you're unvaccinated, there's a greater chance of ending up in the hospital which takes away from people who need cancer treatments and all kinds of other things. All of these things are about not overwhelming the healthcare system, not whether this still spreads when you're vaccinated. It's the degree and what kind of care you're going to need. Okay. Thanks. Let's go to Dennis in Brampton. Hi, Dennis. Hi, Libby. Thank you for taking my call. So I did read this morning that close to 90% of truckers are vaccinated and that we are looking at a 10% roughly, or give or take, that are the hardcore that we're seeing generally out in our community. And I, with respect to the convoy, I wonder what the real agenda is here, because I do, did see that the organizers, uh, in part or in large, are pro-pipeline and Western separatist organizations. Yeah, Wexit, uh, yes. Those, those are my comments. Okay, Dennis, thanks for that. Uh, John, uh, just uh, one more thing on that. Uh, These these MPs, Conservative MPs that have come out in favor, Pierre Polyevre, Melissa Lansman, is that going to help them or hurt them or what? Well, I think it depends on on sort of, you know, the support that they're providing. I think they're supporting the idea of, of a protest and, and of, of this freedom rally in the sense of, of making sure that the message gets out there. Um, I think once it starts becoming a bit of a problem with respect to, you know, how much of a how much of a protest does it does it affect Canadians and, and their travel abilities and, and what have you, um, you know, you're gonna see you're gonna see parties at all 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 Stripes, you know, support protesters and not support protesters. The Liberals and the NDP have always supported protesters more so than the Conservatives. So I think from that perspective, we've never challenged them with respect to their support of various protests. And, and, you know, we've got four, four MPs out of, out of, you know, 99 or whatever we've got from a Conservative perspective, uh, you know, supporting this as a, as a concept. I think that's, that's fair and it's right for them to do. Um, you know, I, I think the more important thing is, is that the trucking alliance, the largest trucking alliance or association condemns it. Uh, and I think Charles made the mention or someone made the mention that it is a small percentage of the trucking association, um, that, uh, that are doing this. So I, I think, you know, it, it's a, it's a, a message that the government needs to hear and, and whether or not they'll do anything with it is a different story. Hmm. And interesting. One of those MPs, Melissa Lansman, uh, McLean's kind of outed her. She tweeted a picture of empty shelves and it was actually from the UK, not from Canada. <laughs> no. Right. You, know, you have to be careful about that, actually. But, uh, um, but yeah, no, Melissa, uh, Melissa Lansman also used to be the note is the under, under uh, cabinet secretary or the shadow cabinet of, of transportation. So obviously it affects her. Uh, in her portfolio, because this is something that obviously affects uh, affects uh, what she does. So she obviously has, has, makes a stand on it. Yeah, she was uh, uh, she was a very good strategist. So there you go. <laughs> yeah, no offense. <laughs> so um, Charles, the other thing that we saw this extremely lengthy article in the Toronto Star detailing the campaign teams who are going to be working for Stephen Del Duca, and they're the a lot of them are architects of the Kathleen Wynne and Dalton McGinty victories. So 
what do you think of that? And do you uh, do you think that Del Duca, as the third party, people have commented, you know, he's not exactly Mr. Charisma. Uh, does he have a shot? Well, he's assembled a good group of people. I mean, I've worked with all of them. And uh, some of the uh, older teams are coming back, people that did a lot more retail uh, politics, more stakeholder engagements. So that was lacking um, during our last few years in power. And, and some of them are doing, uh, have done prep for Dalton and Kathleen. For myself, in fact, some of these guys worked for me directly. And uh, uh, so they're a good bunch. And, and I'm encouraged by, by the fact that Stephen has provided and surrounded himself with a good group to manage the campaign, also a good group of candidates coming forward. There's uh, increasing strength that he has with some of his candidates, and there's some new ones yet to come. Um, and it's important that you see Del Duke is seen as really the opposition. Like, I don't see um, Andrew Horvath being sought after by media. They look to Del Duca for his commentary. Well, and both the of them, really. The have used Del Duca in many of their attack ads um, illustrates, again, uh, that there is... Uh, a, a contest that uh, Stephen has uh, made against Ford. And yeah, he may lack that charm and charisma that Ford seems to have in that folksy manner, but he's competent, he's deliberate, he's methodic, and he's very steady. In fact, Stephen Del Duca has, gr- has been grinding for the last two years without sitting in power, without sitting in government, and doing the ground, and doing the ground game. And yeah, I get it. He, he on a one-on-one, is actually very good with people. But, it, you know, he's, he's working on it, but he recognizes that's not his strength. So he just sticks to, to, the, to, to the, the job at hand, and he's showing himself as being steady, and he's showing himself as not being flippant. In other words, he doesn't shoot from the hip. He does do his homework, does do his research, and he's, making him, and he's being seen as the steady hand in these trying times. Uh, Charles, we've been talking about that fairly staggering amount of money the truckers raised very quickly, but what's the uh, third party's war chest like? Yeah, well, they've paid off their debt uh, in in their former in the previous campaigns, and they're sort you know they're they're looking at increasing their um, their coffers for sure. Um, they have what's necessary to run this next election, regardless. And uh, I know, speaking from my riding association or my former riding association, others, we are doing and we are prepared for that election. Some other ridings had to do more, and, that is, and that, that's going to be their job over the next few months. And of course, donors look at, well, who's really going to be the, 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 the team in power? And they often side with both groups. They provide support for both parties. Um, Del Duca is now starting to receive more attention, and he's receiving more money. Well, he's certainly uh, receiving more attention lately. Uh, John, uh, do you think that they will recover from their position as a third party? Well, yeah, and, and you know, we learn in politics never underestimate your opponents, and, and this is, you know, this is the case where we've seen third parties come in, you know, liberals under Justin Trudeau as an example, and and, uh, and win government. So, you know, I know that the conservatives are certainly not underestimating Stephen Del Duca or the Liberal Party. I think Stephen's challenge still continues to be that the liberal brand is far more popular than he is. Um, in that, you know, because the Liberals have been in power for such a long time, people tend to, if they don't like the government, they'll, they'll sort of park their votes with, with the Liberals. And we've seen a number of polls. I remember on one of our shows, we talked about the poll that was an outlier that showed the Liberals leading uh, by one point. But that, you know, there's been some subsequent polls that have shown the opposite. The Conservatives are back in, in, in power. And in some cases, the NDP are ahead of the Liberals. I think the challenge with Stephen Del Duca is that once the attention starts getting around him, He's got to show Canadian, or sorry, Ontarians that that he is uh, prime, premier uh, premier material, and I'm not sure he's done that yet. And I think with Andrew Horvath, because this is her fourth or fifth election that she's running, there's a familiarity with her. But that also breeds contempt, right? I think that's also uh, goes against her. But I think that from a fundraising perspective, I've seen the numbers that have been listed in the media, and I think their NDP still outweigh the Liberals when it comes to fundraising, um, which is a challenge. Now, I think at the end of the day. I don't, I'm not sure Ontarians will be comfortable with an NDP-led government, um, so the choice might very well be between the Conservatives and the Liberals. But at this point, I think Stephen Del Duca still has a pretty pretty large amount to climb. Karen, what's your view? Yeah, I think that, well, there's a lot of Liberals in the province. And, yeah. um, you know, so although they, they got a, a smackdown in the last election, 
um, the strengths. I mean, that team demonstrated that there's still a lot of strength behind the Liberal brand, as John was mentioning, and behind uh, Stephen Duljuka as an individual. And so the fact he doesn't have charisma, I don't think that matters as much because, you know, we've had prime ministers with no charisma and we've had <laughs> premiers with no charisma. <laughs> so I, I think he can overcome that if he's seen as competent. And um, I think, you know, Doug Ford has quite a bit of charisma and sometimes that works to his advantage and sometimes it doesn't. And so as much as the liberals are popular, well, sorry, as much as there are a lot of liberals out there, I think the Tories have also done some things that have... Um, made them popular and some things that have made them unpopular and governments that's what they need to do because they're in government. And, um, but I, I think that there's going to be a shift in public opinion. And I, and I think that there's a grumpiness out there that, um, that might activate on election day, depending on how the campaign is held. And people are grumpy for different reasons, of course, uh, depending on their circumstances. But I still, I still think that the conservatives will win uh, the next election, but I, it, 12 months ago, I thought, you know, I did, I thought, you know, probably Doug could have gone to Florida for six months and he'd still win the election. Now, now I think he's going to have a campaign on his hands. And uh, I, I do think the liberals will regain their stature as an official party and be the official opposition. If not, I don't think they'll be the government, but I think they will be a strong opposition. Hmm. Uh, final question to Charles. Uh, if Del Duca is coming on uh, and will be in a better, certainly, I mean, it seems like he'll be in a better position than they are now, for sure. Does that just kind of split the non-conservative votes and, and play right into the hands of the conservatives? Um, if you're asking, will Del Duca's rise take away from conservatives or take away from NDP? I'm not sure where the split will be. We've always had the split with, with the NDP, and that was what hurt us more in the last election because they surged, and the conservatives didn't surge that much. It was the NDP that surged and took it away from the liberals, and that's created a split. I think we'll gain some of that back. There is some regret, I find, in in the ground. People are saying, yeah, well, we, we, did, we, you know, we, we, should, uh, we should have been more reflective in terms of how we voted and, and, and why, and the things that they were that the liberals were blasted for, I think they're being forgiven. Um, question is, it's, it'll come down to Ford. I mean, he's the one that could win or lose. And if people like him, if they continue to um, forgive him for the missteps, they'll give him a second chance. I don't believe he'll get uh, a majority, and I don't believe. I'm not. And, and actually, you know, some are hoping that we'll have a liberal government. But let's be realistic. We have a long world to climb. And uh, I think we can hold the, the, the government to a minority uh, one way or the other. And Del Duco and that team will have a lot more prominence and a lot more sway as we go forward. Okay, we're out of time. <laughs> Sorry, John. <laughs> we are totally out of time. Thank you so much, Charles Sousa, John Cabobianco, and Karen Stintz. Thank you, everyone. Okay. We're taking a break. When we come back, two years ago today, first confirmed case of COVID-19. It wasn't called that then. Uh, we will talk about the last two years. We'll remind ourselves, not that uh, it's such a pleasant thing to remind ourselves about it. When we return, let me give the numbers before we go to break. 416-360-0740, toll-free 866 you're listening to an exclusive podcast of Fight Back on Zoomer Radio. Heard weekdays from noon to one. Fight Back with Libby Schneimer on Zoomer Radio. Welcome back. Today marks two years since COVID-19 was first reported in Canada. A 56-year-old man who had just returned from China and was admitted to Sunnybrook with pneumonia-like symptoms, became patient zero, the first case in Canada. Since then, Canada has logged nearly 3 million infections. The first time we reported on COVID, and it wasn't called that then, was a few days before that. It was on January 21st, 2020. And here is what I said that day, quote, it is a scary new threat to public health that's reminding us of the SARS outbreak in 2003. So far, six people have died from this virus, which emerged out of China very recently. 
it has been confirmed that the infection is spreadable among humans and it has spread beyond the city of Wuhan, China, where it originated. That's what I had to say, boy. And it certainly has much outstripped the SARS outbreak, if that's what we were worried about. And what were public health officials thinking? On February 4th, 2020, the chief medical officer of health, Teresa Tam, said again, and I quote, the risk of novel coronavirus remains low in Canada, even if cases have been reported here. Measures are in place to prevent the onward spread from travel-related cases. Boy, she could not have been more wrong. So, what do you think? Here we are, heading into the third year of this. How have you been doing? I keep seeing studies that people's mental health is deteriorating. Um, uh, a lot of people have taken a hit in terms of their livelihoods. There's isolation. Uh, but, you know, um, we've been living with this. Are people managing? What do you think? 416-360-0740, toll-free 1-866-740-4740. And uh, the big question now is, are we on the way out? Uh, are we almost there? We had a warning from the World Health Organization saying, hey, there's no guarantee this is the last variant. Uh, we also heard from the head of Pfizer, Dr. Albert Borlaj. He said he thinks things will be pretty well, very close to normal within a few months. Let us hope that he is right. Well, right now I am joined by some of our frequent contributors that we have relied on and thanks so much over these last two years. Dr. Alon Vaisman, infectious diseases and infection control physician at the University Health Network. Dr. Prabhat Jha, epidemiologist and faculty member at the Dalalana School of Public Health, and Dr. Colin Furness, an infection control epidemiologist and assistant professor at the University of Toronto's Faculty of Information. Hi, everyone. Thanks so much. Hello. Thanks. Thank you. So let us begin with Dr. Furness. So did you ever think that we would be here all this time later. I think my imagination extended as far as Delta, imagining things could get a little bit worse, and I did not have the the foresight to see such a gigantic jump in the evolution. And it's, it's, it's not that Omicron was descended from Delta, it's not, but an evolution in coronavirus overall to be as contagious as measles, which is really what we've got right now, I did not see that coming. So, no, I have to say I've, I have felt humbled uh, over the past two, two months or so that, um, that this is, this is a level of challenge for us that I think we can still win and will still win, but I did not see it coming. Uh, Alone, Dr. Vaisman, what about you? Yes, I think it's very important. I think that's the most important lesson of the pandemic is time and time again, we're all humbled and any kind of plans or predictions we make are constantly being revised and revisited. I think for me, one of the biggest changes in my mind was the change from the vaccine efficacy in terms of preventing transmission for milder, milder asymptomatic disease. You know, initially we were thinking it's quite good, but with Omicron, that calculation has changed. It's not nearly as good. And despite it being very good against protection against death and hospitalization, the fact that it's not as good as preventing transmission has unfortunately resulted in many cases still. Yeah. Uh, Dr. Ja, what about you? Are you well, surprised I'm, we're still here? I'm, su- I'm not surprised that uh, we... Uh, well, l- let me caution that, that. It is surprising how infectious Omicron was. I think that cost, that caught us all. But it's not surprising to me that we would expect variants that could threaten us simply because what was needed from the outset was a strategy to vaccinate the whole world and to decrease places where variants could grow. But we've very much failed on that. So Delta came from uh, basically uncontrolled transmission and think of it as a a nice variant uh, factory uh, in India. And Omicron came from South Africa from a combination of of um, lots of people with infected with HIV plus this new variant that was circulated and low levels of vaccination. 
So it doesn't surprise me that uh, the the nature of the virus and its changes is always surprising. Uh, And that's, you know, you're competing against billions of years of evolution on how the virus behaves. But our political inability to vaccinate the world, to me, isn't surprising. Dr. Furness, what's your take on how Canada has done? I think it's hard to come up with one Canadian narrative. I was always so proud of the Atlantic provinces uh, up until New Brunswick to, to sort of decided to jump in the deep end this past summer, and, and the, the, the regional strategy then came unraveled. But up to that point, they were, I think, exemplary world leaders. And then you had provinces in the West that were really going the opposite way, that were being more libertarian and would put some pretty bad outcomes. And now I see British Columbia having just taken a, a swan dive off the tallest cliff I've ever seen, uh, saying that we're just going to let it rip in hospitals even. We're not even going to try and separate COVID-positive patients. And Ontario and Quebec have alternated between sort of boom and bust of severe restrictions and, and then opening things up. So there isn't one Canadian narrative. None of the narratives have been 100% effective, but there's a lot of times where I wish I lived in Newfoundland or Nova Scotia. Uh, Dr. Vaisman, in terms of how uh, the numbers, first of all, the numbers of people who were infected, the numbers of deaths we had, how did we do? And, and also, you, you work on the front lines at University Health Network. Uh, how did our healthcare system hold up? Yes, it's, I think it all, to compare, it all depends on what you're going to compare to. How Canada compares to the United States and the UK is generally favorable in terms of the number of deaths. Initially, one of the worst outcomes in Canada was among the long-term care uh, individuals living in long-term care, congregate settings, and our mortality was quite high as a result. So that was for sure one of the areas that Canada faltered in. In terms of how things have been going in the healthcare system itself, you know, there's lots of strengths that were highlighted in the pandemic, but of course a lot of weaknesses in terms of the shortages of staff, our facilities. I think that's one of the really big ones that hasn't been discussed enough is our acute care facilities are outdated. We still have patients being admitted to, to multi-bedded rooms with two patients, four patients, even six-bed patients. And that's really a huge problem when it comes to a virus that's so transmissible. So I think improving our infrastructure is really one of the big, big areas that we need to do better on. Well, yeah, and that's that's something that's highlighted, especially in long-term care. I mean, uh, I am going to take a call from Marianne and Vaughn. Hello, Marianne. Hi. Um, I wanted to say my husband did get COVID back in... um, in April, and he was in the hospital for seven weeks. Oh, my goodness. In critical care, oh, in dear. isolation. I didn't get to see him. He went through a nightmare. It was uh, a miracle that he managed to come home. He was also on oxygen for another couple of months when he came home. People do not, un- of course, you, okay, I got it. I got a little bit of a cold. But there is a real COVID out there. And my husband, this is 10 months, and my husband is, my husband is gone from compared to what he used to be. I don't know if he'll ever get better. His lungs are ruined. And, and yet people complain that they still refuse to get this vaccine. You're taking away my freedom, freedom. People, you are in the greatest country in the world. You have all the freedom you could possibly ask for. Go to North Korea, Afghanistan, Cuba. You go to those countries. They have a lot of freedom. Why don't you go there and do what they tell you to do? You know, I'm so sick of these selfish people that refuse to take responsibility. And, you know, I... It's something, yes, you don't wish it on anyone, but sometimes you kind of have to say, well, you know what? Maybe you should taste it. Marianne, I'm I'm I'm, sorry to hear about your husband and wish him all the very best in a full recovery. Thanks for your call. Thank you. Okay, so for a long time, this was characterized as the pandemic of the unvaccinated. So has that changed with Omicron, Dr. Furness? 
It's changed a little bit. I think we're most concerned for, for our ICUs and our worst possible outcomes. We're most concerned of those who aren't vaccinated. That, of course, includes people who have chosen not to, but also every child under the age of five cannot be. And that, by the way, right now, that group, zero to four, that represents the highest rate of, uh, of admissions to hospital now. It's still low in absolute terms, but it is really concerning. That's the group that we're seeing the biggest impact on. And we have relatively little capacity in terms of pediatric intensive care because we, we typically as a population don't need that. So it's, it's, uh, that's, that's really concerning to me. But there's no question that if you've got two doses and it's been more than six months, you can have a really hard ride with Omicron. And, and the, the big problem I, I really want people to remember and understand is what feels like a mild case, what feels like the sniffles, could be actually much worse. Uh, on a vascular level in terms of what's, what it's doing with microclotting and loss of brain tissue and autoimmune disease and, and a number of things that have been grouped together as long COVID, not very well understood. But that's, that's something that vaccinated people can get too. So it's, it's kind of a hard question to answer now. Well, yeah, and you say uh, you can have a hard ride with two doses. Well, uh, I know of people who had a fairly hard ride after three doses. So uh, there you go. Um, and... Uh, Dr. Vaisman, this is partly a political question. I just was talking to my political panel, and, you know, a lot of people are using the fact that it still is transmissible among vaccinated people to push back uh, against restrictions. Um, do you see that as a dangerous thing or sort of inevitable, or how do you, what do you think? Yeah, I, I think it. I think when people are deciding about what they should do in terms of restrictions and individual choices, there is a distinction there. For as an individual, getting decided to get vaccinated versus having a mandate forced upon you is really dependent on how how well the vaccine is protecting you against transmission. And the lesser that is happening, the more argument these individuals have. But I think I still think that argument holds. These vaccine mandates still hold when we're talking about high risk situations like hospitals and places where we're worried about transmission. And in terms of restrictions, the broader society, in terms of whether restrictions are working or when they should be used, really that boils down to how effective they've been and using it very kind of, I do agree that it should be used very carefully because we really only want to target the measure of avoiding hospitalizations and hospital deaths. We really want to avoid overwhelming the system. So I think we do need to move away from this constant cycle of opening and closing and think about very carefully what we're doing here with restrictions. Okay, we've got to take a break. Let me give the numbers out again before we go to break. It is the two-year anniversary of the first confirmed case of COVID in Canada. It happened here in Toronto. It was somebody returning from Wuhan. Uh, the numbers, 416-360-0740, toll-free 1-866-744-740. I want to hear from you about how you're feeling about all of this. Uh, people are sick of it. That is the one thing that is certain. People are tired, especially people working in healthcare on the front lines. This has been just a draining, exhausting two years. And with Omicron, which is so contagious, we're seeing worker shortages because people are catching this, whether they get a mild case or not. So uh, we'll drill down on that when we come back. Give us a shout. You're listening to an exclusive podcast of Fight Back on Zoomer Radio. Heard weekdays from noon to one. Fight Back with Libby Schneimer on Zoomer Radio. Welcome back. We are talking about the two-year anniversary since the first confirmed case of COVID here in Canada. And uh, Dr. Furness, are you brave enough to make a prediction or a thought about where we are at? I know after uh, in the fall, you know, when Delta was winding down, we thought we were close to the end. And then there was this. Sure. 
I'll, I'll be brave, but it'll be a pretty qualified prediction. Um, you know, there's a thing called Farr's Law that says that um, um, an outbreak is going to be symmetrical. The steeper the curve up, the steeper the curve down, and that would suggest that we should be getting out of this actually quite quickly because it hit us like a ton of bricks very, very quickly. But we, that we've, we're messing with that. We're messing with it by, well, except in British Columbia, um, we're, we're instituting things to try and slow that curve a little bit. We're wearing masks and, and we're, we're vaccinating and we're doing these things. So I think we may end up with a longer peak and that may be longer than we wish it to be. It could be a few weeks. When it starts to come down more, uh, it'll keep coming down. I think we're going to be in for a summer of little COVID. And then the question is, does something else, does a new variant emerge? And I think what's already been said about our failure, Dr. Jaw's point, that our failure to vaccinate the world is essentially creating a, a, a petri dish for more variants to emerge. Well, I think we're going to have a few months in the summer to try and move the needle. I, I, I don't, don't want to be naive. I don't think we can fix the world in, in a summer. But the more progress we can make, the better we'll be. Okay. And Dr. Vaisman, I have another question. You know, before all of this, as many of us uh, and the experts were thinking about health care, they were kind of moving away from acute care, hospital care, more in the community. And now we're seeing that actually our hospital capacity is pretty limited. We are way backlogged on very critical care, surgery, uh, cancer care. Is this going to sort of change the trajectory, do you think? Yeah, that's a great point. I think um, with pandemics, with these acute crises, it always brings out new innovations and new ways to provide care. And in this case, the big kind of revelation is, uh, is virtual care, which I use personally for my patients. And, you know, it's more patient-centered in many cases, especially when you consider Ontario there's a lot of concentration of medical care provided in large cities, but not in rural areas, and of course the aging population. So there's many reasons why virtual care can become a huge benefit to many patients. And so moving away from acute care centers, that's again, that's one of the thoughts around all of this. Even moving away from EDs, there's uh, innovations going on at UHN to provide more care virtually for patients who come into the ED in order to prevent admissions. So certainly a lot of these things are being worked ED, on. ED, you mean emergency? Yes, yeah, sorry, yes, yeah, the emergency department, so that we don't have patients waiting in the ED or in the emergency department being admitted to hospital. So offloading the acute care sites has been one of the priorities now, and, and really the innovations are coming quite rapidly now on that front. Dr. Ja, what do you think? I think uh, I agree with the other uh, uh, panelists that uh, it is a time to innovate. What I, If we step back and say, well, you know, what have we gotten out of two years, I am um, surprised very pleasantly of how quickly vaccines became available and uh, implemented worldwide. And they're remarkably effective still, even with the Omicron against protecting against hospitalizations or deaths. And remember, that was very much our original goal is saying, well, we have to protect our healthcare system from collapse. And um, that uh, to large extent was the, the goal of vaccines. I think we've, however, done quite disappointingly on something that was equally suggested, which is rapid testing being available right from the start. Um, and that would have been a key tool, as we've seen in Omicron, where the number of cases uh, far exceeds the testing capacity. So we've we've learned some lessons, but I hope going forward, uh, governments, and this will be very much at the provincial level, will say, well, how do we rejig our healthcare systems to be able to deal with these occasional events that uh, that really are quite disruptive? Uh, but the the order of 2022 is to focus on vaccinating the world. I think we we've, we've got to keep paying attention, and we can't be, keep playing whack-a-mole with variants popping up in different places and going into all sorts of blunt instruments like lockdowns. Yeah, but we, it's we not have just. To get uh, we have to get the world vaccinated this year. It's not just about getting them vaccines. I mean, we're hearing stories about millions of doses being destroyed in places like Nigeria. It's, uh, you know, I mean, you get some of these get stories get exaggerated. But on the whole, the main issue is insufficient supply. In Sierra Leone, where I work, um, and, you know, that's where I traveled uh, several times during the pandemic, the, if there were enough good vaccines available, the people are willing to line up and get them. So I think, and all the concerns about vaccine hesitancy, 
that we have here are simply not as prominent an issue in the places that need them. So we, if, if we achieve that, then we can anticipate a time saying, okay, this is the end of the pandemic. We're in an endemic phase. If we don't, my fear is, as Dr. Furness says, we'll be just, we have a few months window and then we're facing another wave. So we can't keep playing whack-a-mole. We've got to have a global solution that actually works. Dr. Furness, we have these sizable uh, minorities, more so in the United States, that are anti-vax, which seems to coexist with a lot of very unsavory things, um, including uh, anti-science. You know, do you have any thoughts about, you know, the impact on medicine in general, because that seems to be growing, conspiracy theories, whatever else, uh, and hate groups, all, all kind of aligned. There's no question that there's an increasing politicization of science and politicization of, of reality, even. So we're, we're seeing along ideological lines in some cases, or in many cases, especially in the States, but here too, uh, people who are equating uh, vaccine mandates with a direct assault on freedom, which is a very, very odd take, uh, there's, there's, <laughs> to, my, to my mind. And yet this is happening. But we also have to remember that anti-vaxxing isn't one thing, and it's also not new. Anti-vaxxing was a, was a phenomenon around Spanish flu 100 years ago around smallpox more than 100 years ago there were anti-vax protests in this case though we can segment them a little bit to say there are those who are white affluent affluent educated and are enacting some exceptionalism they're not having gluten and they're not having vaccines because and then you have people who simply don't trust the health system and they may be racialized marginalized there's a long history of a very colonial and racist approach in in supplying health care uh and so if you're from a group like that those those cars run deep and you know when a guy in a white lab coat shows up and says i want to inject this into you you know the trust isn't there and trust is is it's incredibly important and then you have people who don't believe covid is real uh and and don't you know think that's a Thing. And then you also have people who are just afraid. You know, they've been hearing stuff and they're afraid. Maybe they're afraid of needles and that's, it's fear driven. So we can make inroads with some. We can, we, you know, education will absolutely help. Role modeling absolutely helps. Community engagement absolutely helps. We can chip away at it. We're never going to get to 100. But we could get maybe into the 90s of people who are willing to come along with it. And some vaccine hesitancy is, is diminishing over time as, as we see the vaccines work, as we see the, the feared upon uh, side effects of turning into a zombie or, or becoming magnetic are, are not proving true. So that is, you know, that's my way of saying I think we have a lot of progress or a lot of work to do, but we've made progress and I think we still will. Okay, Dr. Vaisman, we're almost out of time. Last 20 seconds to you. I think there's a lot of reasons to be optimistic, of course, with the vaccination rates going high. Vaccinations are remaining very effective against death and hospitalizations. But of course, as we discussed, there's still a lot of improvement in terms of preparing for the next pandemic, preparing for the next wave for our healthcare system to be protected. Okay. Uh, that is all the time we have. Thank you so much, Dr. Prabhat Jha, Dr. Colin Furness, and Dr. Alon Vaisman. As always, we really appreciate your insight. Thank you. Thanks, Thanks very much. And that is all the time we have for today. You're listening to an exclusive podcast of Fight Back on Zoomer Radio. Heard weekdays from noon to one. This podcast is proudly produced and presented by the Zoomer Podcast Network, home of great podcasts like Marilyn Lightstone Reads, Idea City on the Air, and The Garden Show.